Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, it's always, always such a blessing uh, to come here and worship God with his people at GFC. I really enjoy these pulpit swaps, and I have no doubt that uh, God will richly bless New City, uh, as Pastor Steve Kim is there this morning. He's opening up the word to them. And along with Patrick, I pray the same for us, that uh, we might be blessed and God glorified as we look into his word today. If you would, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In this book, Paul addresses 10 problems the church in Corinth is facing, and then for each problem, he gives a gospel solution. And by chapter 6, the apostle has already addressed divisions over church leaders, as well as tolerating a case of incest. Now we come to problem number three. Some Corinthians, some Corinthian Christians are bringing lawsuits against one another. And you may be thinking, okay, wow, this is a, this is a random text for Pastor Jean to preach today on Pulpit Swap Sunday. Uh, is, does he think he's giving us a word in season? <laughs> are members of GFC suing one another? Uh, actually, uh, this text isn't random at all. I actually preached it last Sunday at New City. Nor is its application limited only to taking other believers to court. Uh, it is a word in season for this church. It's a word in season for every church because this passage is deepest gospel. And the gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and in unity. And that's what this chapter is all about. Now, let me introduce to us what's happening in this passage by speaking about worldviews for a moment. Everybody has a worldview. Everyone has a reasonably comprehensive interpretation of reality, whether it's thought through or not. Uh, and our worldview affects everything that we do, all that we do. I, I don't know if you recall, but, but a few years ago, I think in 2014, Starbucks invited us to share in Oprah Winfrey's worldview. Do you remember steep time and uh, the special cardboard sleeves that Starbucks would put around their coffees? Or I maybe mean, this is a Timmy's crowd, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, the, the advertisements, they read this way. Oprah invites you to take a few moments to pause and reflect each day, your own personal steep time. Now, here's a representative sampling. Be more splendid. Be more extraordinary. Use every moment to fill yourself up. Or, know what sparks the light in you. Then use that light to illuminate the world. Now, that advice, it's, it's wisdom, it's morality, it's conformity to reality. Uh, it's all informed, obviously, by Oprah's worldview. And we'll receive it, or not, each of us, based on our worldview, our own interpretation of reality. Christians have a worldview. Christians interpret all of reality through the matrix of what God has revealed in his holy scriptures. Uh, the triune God who has revealed himself in the Bible, that is our highest authority. He is the highest authority. And God reveals to us in the Bible that everything, all of human history, 
all of reality and what lies at the very center of God's eternal purpose is wrapped up with his son, Jesus Christ, and his church. So no matter what your worldview may be, friend, no matter how many things you may have right about reality on some level, if everything isn't focused like a laser beam on Jesus Christ and his cross and his resurrection, his church, his eternal reign, then God says that your worldview is ultimately bankrupt. Your worldview does not conform to truth because your interpretation of reality doesn't conform to the will of God as it's disclosed in the Bible. Now, what does this have to do with taking Christians to court? Absolutely everything. Brothers and sisters, our worldview informs how we evaluate the relative importance of our worldly possessions compared to the treasures we will receive in Jesus' consummated kingdom. The Bible speaks to that. It informs our perspective on life, and so God's people live accordingly. Also, how we're to live before an unbelieving world with the purity of the gospel on full display. How we, under, how we understand our legal rights and how that's balanced out with love for our neighbor, even if it means we get cheated. It all flows from a biblical perspective focused on the cross. It's why Christians live the way we do. It's all linked to the gospel, that glorious reality that once our lives were characterized by sin, it was characterized by wickedness, but now we've been washed by Jesus. We've been set apart. We've been forgiven of our sins with the very righteousness of Jesus imputed to us and given the indwelling spirit so that now we live holy lives, lives in obedience to the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. And that knowledge impacts every thought, every attitude, every decision, every prioritization. It informs the choices we make in life, brothers and sisters, even the costly, costly sacrifices. But as we read through 1 Corinthians, we see that the faith of the church in Corinth, however sincere it may have been, has not yet transformed the worldview they inherited from the surrounding pagan culture. They've not yet grasped how the theology of the cross not only constitutes the, the basis of their salvation, but also and inevitably teaches Christians how to live in this world and serve one another. How the Corinthians are living now as God's future people, the citizens of Jesus' consummated kingdom in the present, is in direct conflict with what God has revealed in Old Testament Scripture and through the teachings and writings of the Apostle Paul. So they need to get back in line with what they'd previously been taught, what they'd previously believed. They need to live like what they really are in the light of what Jesus has actually done on their behalf. So our first point, you can see this in your bulletin, an exasperated rebuke. This is an apostolic rebuke. And that exasperation isn't the exasperation of a parent after a long day with the children. Come on, kids. Just work it out amongst yourselves. Just play nice. <laughs> no, the apostle's exasperation 
is due to the Corinthians' bad eschatology. In light of eschatological realities, and eschatology is just a fancy word for the study of last things, this movement toward the already here, not yet come, new creational reign of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, in light of eschatological realities, the Corinthians should be able to settle their own disputes and be willing to suffer wrong. Not just to Corinthians, of course, that applies to all Christians. In light of eschatological realities, the members of Grace Fellowship Church should be able to settle their own disputes and be willing to suffer wrong. As well, flowing from this eschatological outlook on life, Christians are to have a holy detachment to the material things of this present world. And that detachment is going to evidence itself in a willingness to part with our money, to part with our property, even be cheated out of it, if the reputation of the church is at stake. But this outlook is something the Corinthians lack. And so we have Paul's exasperated rebuke in verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Paul's horrified. He finds this whole situation incredible. It's wrong on so many levels. But what's his problem? Why is he so upset? It's because Paul understands the gospel and the gospel's entailments. Paul understands, in consequence of Jesus' death and resurrection for sin, what God is going to do through his people on the day of judgment. And it makes this whole situation in the Corinthian church just ludicrous. Look at verse 2. Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world... Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Now, Paul doesn't explain what this Christian judgment of the world will look like, uh, either the part that we play, how that unfolds, nor does anybody else in the New Testament. This is one of those texts, brothers and sisters, that's just cloaked in mystery. God has not seen fit to disclose all the details. But Christians are, in some way, involved in rendering judgment on the final day. And so, Paul tells the Corinthian Christians, here are those who will not inherit the kingdom, whom God, through his people, will judge. But you're bringing your trivial civil lawsuits before these very same people for adjudication. There you are, standing in the marketplace, in the city center. You're at Young and Dundas, declaring to the whole world, this brother in Jesus Christ sold me a diseased pig. Decide between the two of us. This sister in Christ encroached on my property when she built the addition to her home. Decide between the two of us. Do you dare do this? Verse 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? Again, 
What that looks like, we don't know. But in some sense, Christians will judge fallen angels on the last day, the highest order of created being. Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, verse 4, if you have, a, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. Paul's tearing his hair out. This is disgraceful. You're airing the church's dirty laundry in a public forum, in an unbelieving forum, in front of people you one day will judge. Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? Don't you see that your gospel witness to the world is utterly compromised by these actions? What are you thinking, Corinthians? Why are you acting so inconsistently with the reality of the gospel, with who you are in Jesus Christ? Why are you disregarding what is yours in the gospel and will be yours in the new heavens and new earth? Now, I'm moving through this text at a fairly rapid clip because I'm, I'm trying to preach this passage like it reads, almost as if like the Apostle Paul has grabbed the Corinthians by the lapels and he's just giving them a good shake, right? They should know better, which is why Paul says, do you not know six times in this chapter? Do you not know? 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 The tone of the entire passage is one of incredulous, exasperated rebuke. But with verse 7, I'm going to slow things down a bit. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Which is to say, you've lost the integrity of your status as holy people. And Paul's directing that point, point to all three parties, the plaintiff, the defendant, and the church as a whole. First, the plaintiff, the man who has been wronged and who took the case to civil court in the first place. Paul's telling him, brother, whether you win, whether you lose, the legal action itself is already a loss. Even if you win in court, you lose. Because it's been shown, even though you are a future citizen of Jesus' consummated kingdom, that you are unable to endure injury. Before the eyes of an unbelieving world, you've shown how much of a premium you place on your property, on your possessions, and on your legal rights. And so the church loses by your actions before this public tribunal down at Young and Dundas. <laughs> and then Paul drops the bomb. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Oh, <laughs> that's when we know that the Apostle Paul is looking at matters of personal rights, legal rights, money, possessions, and 
justice in this world from a perspective, and it's an eschatological perspective, beloved, which eludes many, many Christians. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? That knife goes deep into my heart. Now, something I'm not going to do in this sermon is give case studies. What about this situation? What about that situation? Uh, I would, however, draw your attention to one important fact. I didn't make the cut in your bulletin, but I had a few clarifying points. I'm just going to say this one thing, just a clarifying point. Paul is referring to civil matters in this text, not criminal matters. Paul does not permit Christians and their churches to avoid disclosing a crime to the God-ordained secular authorities, Romans 13, 1-7. So just keep that on the back burner. That's a very important point to make. Nor is there a biblically prescribed course as to how the Lord's people arbitrate in civil matters like this, in a church context. Uh, but there are fundamental principles of prudence and wisdom a church should follow. Traditionally, wisely, elders play a big role in this. And by God's grace, I understand GFC has a lawyer who is a member here, so that sister could lend the church assistance on any legal matters. But there isn't a biblically prescribed course as to how the Lord's people arbitrate in matters like this. What we need to see here is the heart. What's happening in verse 7? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? How can the Apostle Paul say something like that with a straight face? I mean, is he off his rocker? He's calling for this believer not just to forgo his legal rights, but to willingly suffer injustice and abuse rather than take his dispute with his brother in Christ before a pagan court. Beloved, God's telling us all, right, on an individual level, that we ought to be more willing to place the church's interests above our own and to suffer unjust treatment, to forgo even our legal rights than to damage the church's witness in the world. Let me repeat that. We ought to be more willing to place the church's interests above our own and to suffer unjust treatment, to forgo even our legal right, than to damage the church's witness in this world. And this willingness of Christians to suffer injustice and abuse for the cause of Christ is a major theme in New Testament Scripture, isn't it? Do you recall what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, verse 40? And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And that outer garment, that coat, was recognized in the law of Moses, Exodus twenty-two twenty-six, to be an inalienable possession. That means by decree of God, no one was allowed to take that coat from an Israelite. But Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, 
hand over that coat as well. What's at stake here, brothers and sisters, is a principle. And it's the same principle that Paul has picked up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Even those things which we regard as our right by law, we must be prepared to abandon. That's how God's future people live in this present world. Even those things which we regard as our right by law, we must be prepared to abandon. That's how God's future people live in this present world. And this is where the eschatological rubber meets the road, right? It's not in counting toes on statues in Daniel or horns on beasts in Revelation. It's about the followers of Jesus preferring to be wronged and cheated rather than in entering into litigation with another follower of Jesus. It's about the followers of Jesus preferring to be wrong, preferring to be cheated rather than bringing the gospel and the local church into public shame. This is Holy Spirit-empowered New Covenant sanctification. This is part of what it looks like. Friends, the key to understanding everything in our text today is this. Our lives no longer belong to us. Our lives belong to Jesus. And so we recognize we have no rights. Be that a right to a good reputation in this world, respect, Sexual fulfillment, relational fulfillment, family, money, personal dignity, comfort, health, justice, property. GFC, the cause of Christ, the reputation of the church before the world, the fact that we are the future people of God living in the present, that is to be an ever-functioning part of our worldview. That reality is always to be before our eyes, even when we post things on social media. But do you see what's happened? The importance of this Corinthian man's property and his desire to retrieve the money that he's been swindled out of at any cost to the church's reputation, has far too much sway in his thinking. Gospel priorities are being displaced. His eternal perspective is being lost. And Paul's telling him, shame on you, brother. Don't you know what time it is, salvation historically speaking? Property and material possessions and legal rights are of little consequence to those destined to inherit the kingdom of God those are all trivial things. That's actually the, the word Paul uses in verse 2. All those things are trivial things. And if this man had only endured being wronged, if he had only endured being cheated, then he would have truly won. Verse 7, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. And that's also directed at the defendant, the defrauder. And Paul's anticipating here what he's going to be telling that guy in verses 8 through 10. He's telling him, 
by your sinful wrongdoing, which precipitated this lawsuit, you too have suffered defeat. What in the world were you thinking? Even if you gained some temporal advantage through your thievery, don't you realize that you stand in greater danger of losing your eternal inheritance? But no matter what the result of the lawsuit, whether the plaintiff wins or the defendant wins, it's the Corinthian church as a whole who is the real loser here. The entire church was defeated the moment these legal proceedings began. Why? Because this lawsuit serves as testimony to the church's failure to resolve conflict. This outpost of heaven filled with the present and future people of God, they can't resolve conflict. This temple of God where the Spirit dwells, they can't resolve conflict. These people who will be judging angels, who will be judging the world, they can't resolve conflict. And so Paul gives the following warning. Those whose lives are characterized by sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is our second point, an eschatological warning. Verse 8, instead you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Speaking as a pastor, that is a nightmare verse. I pray I never have to write such terrible words in a church email. Paul knew these people. He loved them. He baptized some of them. He he labored in their midst for a year and a half. The church wasn't five years old, but it's come to this. In effect, Paul is saying, even though you should know better and not be like them, you are just like the pagans who surround you. In your midst there is greed and fraud, not to mention sexual immorality and, and idolatry, and that with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. This kind of simple behavior is not only shameful, but it cannot be tolerated. Don't you know there are consequences for unrepentant sin? Verse 9, or you do not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, it's really important that we keep the flow of Paul's argument here. Uh, In the overall context, Paul's been speaking to the church. These wrongdoers are members of the church, professing Christians who are living just like the pagans who surround them. That's whom Paul's addressing. He He is not saying if anybody has ever done something sinful, if you are even now, friend, characterized, by some or even all the sins listed in verses 9 through 10, then there's no hope for you. You can never be saved. You're beyond the pale because wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. No, 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 not at all. Uh, God makes the offer of full salvation to every sinner, the worst of sinners, to you, to me. He saves all who bow the knee to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. As the old hymn says, Jesus' blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So, friend, if you're a foul, foul sinner, 
if, if you've done some truly disgusting things in your life that you've never told a living soul, come to Jesus. Believe in him. He will clean you no matter what the sin. God will forgive you. He will not punish you for your sin because on the cross, Jesus bore the sin and the shame and the guilt and the divine wrath do every sinner who believes in him. No, verse 9 is directed toward the professing Christian. It's directed toward the members of the Corinthian church. It's directed toward the Christian who is nurturing sin. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And, and Paul's not talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness here. He's not talking about sinful, stupid lapses. He's talking about a whole way of life that's pursued persistently. This is persistent rebellion against God, not the temporary backsliding or sinful lapse of the true believer. And as such, it shows a person's profession of faith in Jesus Christ to be made up of deceit and lies because they are sexually immoral. They are greedy. They are drunkards. They are slanderers. They are swindlers. Their lives are characterized by sin. And Paul's point is to warn the Lord's people, not only the man who has wronged his brother, but the whole church, if they persist in sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Friend, don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're a heaven-bound, forgiven sinner when you're not, when you prefer your sin to repentance and faithful living for Jesus. If you would turn quickly to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And what makes this judgment seem so tragic is that these people take themselves to be real believers, don't they? They expect to be granted admission into the kingdom, and they're shocked. They're unprepared when Jesus, who they thought was their Savior, disowns them. I never knew you. Can you imagine hearing that from the Lord on the last day? I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Jesus tells us there are many people who use the right language, who even perform spiritual wonders in his name, who are not genuine disciples. So if that's the case, what is the essential characteristic of the true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? If it's not loud professions of Lord, Lord, or, or spectacular spiritual triumphs or great spiritual experiences, what is it? The true believer's chief characteristic is obedience. True believers perform the will of God in heaven. They are not evildoers. They are not workers of lawlessness. As Don Carson puts it, the Father's will is not simply admired, discussed, praised, or debated. It is done. And so, my friend, look to your own life right now as you sit in your chair. Do not be spiritually deceived. Be honest with yourself. Be honest. Did you perhaps enjoy some spiritual experience in the past and you're living now in the glow of that experience, just coasting on its spiritual fumes rather than living a present life of repentant faith and obedience? Not the obedience which earns merit points, but an obedience which bows the knee to Jesus' lordship in everything everything without reservation. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But now, the glorious, glorious revolution brought about by the preaching of the gospel comes out in the quiet words of verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ah, what joy it is to read that verse and to know its truth and to rejoice in the grace of the gospel of our Savior. is just joy unspeakable. God's electing grace in Jesus Christ can reach anyone. And God chose the sexually immoral in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And that's what some of you were, GFC. You were adulterers and adulteresses. You were fornicators. You were porn addicts. You were men who had sex with men. You were women who had sex with women. All chosen from before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. In love, God predestined swindlers and thieves at Grace Fellowship Church for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure, and will to the praise of his glorious grace. And then, by God's enabling grace, you believed. You repented of your sin. You were baptized, and you joined this local church. This is a snapshot of you, GFC. This is what some of you were. 
And if not the sins listed here, then our lives were characterized by our unrepentant wallowing in 1,000 other sins. We all, all live lives characterized by our sin, lives characterized by shaking our puny little fists in God's face in pathetic, autonomous rebellion. But no longer. There has been a supernatural new covenant transformation through the gracious work of Jesus and the Spirit. We were washed. We were cleansed from the filth of our sin, and now we're clean before God. We are a spiritually transformed people. We were sanctified. We were set apart as holy. We were separated from a godless lifestyle, possessed by God the Holy Spirit. We were justified. That means we were declared righteous by God despite our many, many sins and set in a right relationship to God, vindicated by God, all through Jesus Christ and the indwelling Spirit of God. But do you see the arc of Paul's argument? And with this, I'll close. We need to see this. He's making a theological statement, brothers and sisters. It's one of the most important theological statements of the entire letter. He's telling the Corinthian church, and so he's telling the entire people of God, your conversion affected by God through the work of Christ and the Spirit is what has removed you from being among the wicked of this world, those who will not inherit the kingdom. Therefore, live out this new life in Christ and stop being like the wicked. Stop defrauding people. Stop living in sexual sin. Stop getting drunk. That is what some of you were. But now in Christ Jesus, you are something different. So live like it. Live like what you are in Jesus Christ, the future people of God living in the present. And so be more willing to place this local church's interests above your own. Be more willing to suffer unjust treatment, to forgo even your legal rights than to damage the church's witness in this world. Amen. Let's pray. All people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, bless the preaching of your word to your people this day. Amen.